Right. So Tom and I go through this, um, Tom H and I go through this 20 minute vocal coach exercise at the beginning of the podcast. So we're just going to, if you follow along with me, I would be so funny if we just did that, but a whole piece like, me, 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 me. I just pitched in and I was incredible. Yeah, that would be amazing. Hello, welcome to the podcast, episode three. I'm Craig Pugsley. And I'm Tom Hazelden. So we've got a really special podcast for you today. Um, the topic is recruitment. Um, you know, it's such a fundamental part of building a successful product organization um, that Tom and I just really wanted to talk about it. Um, but the reason it's super special today is that we're being joined by a guest. Um, this is someone that both Tom and I have worked with in the past. He's an absolute star in his field. It's uh, Tom Knights, Director at Talent Consultancy Scene. Hello, Tom. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Excited, albeit potentially a bit nervous and apprehensive for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. Yeah, look, thank you so much um, for being with us today. Um, I think my biggest challenge is going to be differentiating the two of you. We've got a, a sort of a slide towards too many Toms on the podcast. So I'm going to see Tom H and Tom K, I think, uh, to uh, differentiate you guys. So, yeah, look, Craig and I are super excited to have you on the podcast, Tom. All, all your experience of, of building teams, and we've built several product teams together. Um, I loved your approach, so it's been fascinating to sort of drill into that in a bit more detail. Um, so look, Tom K, you and I have known each other. We've worked together for about a year now, but you and Tom H are friends from um, way back, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I guess Tom and, I, Tom and I probably first worked together um, two or three years or so ago. Um, I mean, Tom initially said no to every single candidate I sent him in the first ever shortlist I presented to him. Um, we and then yeah, we we gave me some pretty direct feedback. We quickly got over that though. Um, so yeah, we've 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 known each other for quite a while. <laughs> Great. And look for our audience who maybe haven't met you before. Can you give us a quick bio, please? Tell us who you are and um, what scene does. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess I've got fifteen years of recruitment experience, which um, sounds as long as it feels and uh, potentially looks as well. I think. Um, prior to scene, I built and ran the UK perm team for a large corporate recruitment agency um, for about a decade or so. Um, and I was then part of the founding team at scene where I joined as employee number three. Uh, so, I mean, that was January 2020, uh, which was obviously an interesting time to leave a stable corporate career. Um, I guess it's kind of like recruiters and recruitment have a pretty bad rep and I think sadly much of it is justified um, the the driving ethos behind scene is to challenge that stereotype um, and to prove that recruitment and um, to, to prove that in recruitment mission customer experience and profit can all exist under the same roof um, as a as a company we exclusively support VC P back startups and scale-ups um, and we've specifically built our team to be able to support in all of the areas that those early stage and growth stage companies hire so whether that's tech product go to market um, data or business operations um, since launching we've grown a customer base to uh, over a hundred portfolio companies globally um, cross-sector um, and our role is very much advising on all things that are talent, as well as supporting with hiring. Um, and we've currently got offices in London and mainland Europe and soon to be LA. Very exciting. Very exciting. Great. So look, Tom is our guest star today. We're talking recruitment. Let's do this. 
All right. So, yeah, Tom K, um, let's start at the beginning, right? What does a great client relationship look like to you? Cool. So, I mean, I think there's a few sort of core components of it. I think the first thing for me would be would be trust. So I think, you know, um, client to recruiter, recruiter to client, that there has to be that trust there. And that is the fundamental building block of, of, of a great relationship. And I think the enabler for that is is great communication. Um, and I think that is, you know, timely, concise, coherent, um, making sure that as much as possible, things are time bound and people follow up on, on what they say they're going to do. So, yeah, for me, it's it, it's trust, which is enabled by great communication. Obviously, trust can be challenging to build when you're working with startups and scale ups. Things need to happen super quick. Um, everyone's in a hurry to do everything. Um, so that that trust bit can be quite challenging because typically that is built over a long, a long period of time. Right. Um, but yeah, good, good, good communication is a really fundamental building block for, for, for a relationship. I think the other thing for me as well would be then sort of like expertise and advisory. So, you know, when you're looking at working with a client, like really understanding like the market um, and understanding like the gray areas as much as possible so that you can, as you know, as much as possible as a recruiter, you can kind of really be that SME. And I think the more that you can do that, the more that you can build a great relationship with a, with, with, with a client. Mm. Okay, now that's super interesting. So when you say grey areas, like what are you talking specifically about there? Is that the sort of the the areas of the business that maybe don't come across in what would be a job description? Is it sort of understanding what the the startups are really looking for? What are you what's sort of important there for you? Yeah, I think what it, I think it's the nuances, right? The nuances between within skill sets or the nuances between what a company is looking for. Um, I think it's really understanding where the where the flex is. Um, the more that you can understand those slightly less tangible parts of a role or an organization, the more that you're able to find great people. Because fundamentally, that's that that's that's why an end client chooses to work with you. Like the you know the the war for talent, the McKinsey bit back in the '90s is like still very true, right? Like you need to be able to work with a recruiter who can understand those intangible elements because that's part of being able to craft a really compelling company pitch and a really compelling narrative to get the very best candidates interested. And, you know, if you're able to do that, then you're able to build a great relationship with the client. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So let's flip that over then. Like what does a good candidate relationship look like to you? All of, all of the above. I think so. That, you know, <laughs> trust, and, trust and trust and great um, communication are, are obviously, you know, really strong parts of that. I mean, I think the other thing that I would add specifically when thinking about candidates and, you know, really thinking about people who are looking for new roles and looking to take the next step in their career. I think building that great relationship as a recruiter entails properly understanding what I would refer to as someone's push and pull factors. So, you know, a, a push factor would be why are they open to having that conversation with you in the first place? It's the first question I ask anyone I ever talk to, um, because mm. typically the people you talk to already have great jobs. Um, they're already well looked after. They're doing interesting things. Um, so, you know, understanding the motivation behind why they're open to having the chat in the first place. And then the second part then is like, what are the pull factors? So what's someone's ideal role? Where are they looking to go in their career, short, medium and long term? And I think, you know, if you're looking at building a really great relationship, either as a recruiter to a, to a person in the market or as a person in the market with a recruiter, I think really being really clear on those things around, you know, what are your push and pull factors? Um, the, the clearer you are on that, the, the, the more likely you are to have like a successful relationship when dealing with someone. Mm, Just to add that's a really interesting. Of things there, I mean, that, that certainly resonated what, what Tom said, but 
What I found enormous helpful on either side of the fence is the way that an external recruiter can be a buffer, right? And, um, you know, I think you can remove a lot of the emotion, um, again, on, on both sides, speaking as a recent candidate, but also a hiring manager and, and can push that little bit harder, perhaps, and is maybe better placed in some circumstances to have some of the difficult conversations that, that frankly need to be had. Um, and I, I really like what Tom said about understanding the culture, because that, um, you know, I've, Tom's helped me build multiple product teams now. And I think that's something he was able to do far better than, than your average recruiter and started to get a sense of, okay, this person has a really good alignment with the value. So that, that screening up front can save so much time. If you're only seeing people that have the ability to thrive in your culture, that, that makes a huge difference for line managing because you're, you're probably looking at about an hour and a half per candidate, even for a 30 minute interview, right? You've got to prep, read the CV, give feedback, et cetera, et cetera. So that is super important. If you're thinking about all of the parties involved in that, right? Like everyone wants the same outcome. Like the reason why a company is working with a recruiter in the first place is to try and fill the requirement that they've got. The reason why a candidate or a person is working with a recruiter in the first place is typically to try and find a new role, right? But, you know, um, regardless of how urgent that search might be. So I think really clear and consistent and concise communication across that where everyone knows where they stand. And, you know, you're, you're going from everything from um, the culture to the skill set to the, the motivations and expectations on both sides. I think it's the role of the recruiter is to be the conduit between that, um, you know, buffer, you know, to, 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 to make sure that you're clearing up any of those, like, you know, possible ambiguities of which there are many in most recruitment processes. Yeah. And I think one thing I would add as well is, um, and this is an extension really, I think of, of Tom um, H's point about the buffer. The one, one thing the recruiters do really well, and Tom, you've really helped me with this as well from a, um, a hiring perspective, is actually in the detail because because you are uh, you know in the world of recruitment day in and day out and you're you're you know seeing these assets these job descriptions and whatever job um, you know uh, CVs and portfolios flying around you know what works you know what what uh, resonates and you know how best a candidate can present themselves and also how the organization can best reflect what they're looking for in the assets that they send around so at a really detailed level the advice and guidance that you're able to give us on you know what should be in the job description how we should phrase things what we should be you know asking for in that those sort of initial screener interviews um was really super helpful it was just that that sort of professional expert perspective um on how those things should work yeah i think um i think i think advisory is always going to be part of it right um and and that's advising candidates end to end in a process but also end of, uh, advising end and clients as well and i think the more that you can leverage market knowledge and the more that you can leverage insights and the more that you can you know genuinely support people on both sides of that of that process the more likely you are to get an outcome that works for everyone involved so actually this is a quite neat segue into the into the next question so um you know we've been using things like job descriptions CVs, portfolios as mechanisms for, you know, comparing candidates' abilities to, to these jobs that we want to fill um, for decades, since, certainly since, uh, you know, I've been in the industry. Um, are they still the best way to match candidates for roles? You know, have you seen any other mechanisms that employers and employees have used that you thought were really effective? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think like the, 
the cost of so there's a um, there's there's a lot of study by a guy called Brad Smart that basically goes into the cost of a mishire. I think the cost of a mishire is about four times someone's annual salary for a mid to junior role, and it's up to about fifteen times for an exec or C suite role when you're factoring in everything around um, financials, the time, missed opportunity costs, and like organizational disruption. So everyone going into a hiring process always has the best intentions at heart because you know fundamentally everyone wants the same outcome. I think. There's, there's there's a few things that for me are most effective. So I mean, um, the the number one thing, which is a number one indicator of performance in a role, is like a work sample. So a live assessment where someone can demonstrate the skills and solving problems <clears throat> similar to the role that they will actually well sim, sim, similar to what they will do in the role at the organisation. That is the what that is the number one indicator of someone's ability to do the job. Um, the second one is just a really solid, strong, structured competency-based interview. So that that is the number two. So going as deep as possible into the actual skills that people will be using and when they've done those previously in their career. That's 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 the second one. I think I think most people know that, and, and I think you know, sort of most most hiring companies use those those techniques. I think for me, the disconnects come from um, actually how those things are graded. And the disconnects come from like, you know, everyone in the process being aware of specifically what good looks like within those. I think if we're thinking about products specifically, um, it's slightly easier with like technical roles. So, you know, a software engineer can do a hacker rank or a codility that's directly based on the technical problems or challenges that they would face in a role. And they get a numerical score at the end, you know, whatever, a percentage score. And then a hiring team can objectively say, candidate A is better than candidate B because of that score. However, I think it's much harder in product and design or strategy, for example, where skills are harder to quantify and they're, 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 they're a bit less tangible. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting challenge for sure. So so of some of those mechanisms that you described just there, um, you know, you could argue that a job description and then matching with a CV and portfolio probably don't do that justice. They don't aren't really, you know, as effective as they could be. What other mechanisms could we use? You know, what other tools or um, you know techniques have you seen that could help to satisfy uh, that that pairing a bit better, more effectively? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is where working with a recruiter really closely is like a huge value add. So a CV is part of it, but the other thing is like you know, what is the story behind the person who's who's applying? Why are they applying and why are they a great fit for the role? And I think that's where, you know, even with the rise of AI and, you know, machine learning and different sort of type, types of automation, working with a recruiter on a human level can make sure that you're seeing the right people for the job. The interview process is part of it, but if you're not working with a recruiter who understands your culture and the sorts of people you're working with, you're never actually going to even meet the people who could be the right people for the job, let alone assess them properly in part of the process. Um, yeah. So, I mean, t to me, it certainly feels like, you know, the job description, the CV and portfolio are that very initial kind of barrier, that that point at which the, the first wave of people get either filtered in or out. Um, but yeah, after that, all the things that you've just mentioned, I think absolutely have to come into play straight away, especially in the sort of light of the market as it is at the moment, whether the volume of candidates chasing after a uh, reasonably small number of roles has significantly changed. So. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, um, let's change tack a little bit then. Um, so here's a maybe slightly controversial question. To what extent do you think that recruiters should be sort of persuading potential candidates that they should go for a role versus kind of 
understanding what their needs might be and just putting the information of new roles in front of people you know how active should do you think a recruiter should be i think this is a great question um and yeah may, maybe i should have asked to see the content before i agreed to do the pod um but look, I, mean, I think i think i think all all, all jokes aside right a, a recruitment process is a connection and it's a relationship between candidate and client and often as i said the recruiter is the conduit within that um i think if you take a step back from it all so, there, there's a degree of persuasion that happens within all parties in that process at kind of like all stages like that could be a um, candidate trying to convince the recruiter at the beginning of the process that they're the right person to go down for the job it could be a candidate in an interview process trying to convince the company that they're the right person to hire and then at the end there's definitely a part of a company trying to convince the candidate that they should choose them I mean I think specifically if we're going to talk about the recruiter relationship and sort of like a recruiter interacting with someone and how much persuasion there is I think really for me it comes down to um understanding that person's motivations and understanding you know what that person is looking for because if you can fundamentally align them to the right opportunities right from the start there shouldn't really have to be much of that and I think when there is disalignment in that process and when people are not aware of what is important to someone that is when you know whether it's persuasion or whether it's like the stereotypically kind of like pushy recruiter that is when that is a thing when fundamentally people are misaligned from the start yeah, and just to add on that, I guess I, I start to get pretty twitchy about persuading um, people to take roles or be interested in a role. And it, I think, you know, selling the, the benefits of position or a company, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. And I would expect that from the recruiter and I'd expect that from myself, frankly, as a, as a hiring manager. But I think the minute that language changes to, I think you should do this or, you know, this is the right role for you I, I i get very nervous there and I, the reason i say that is that you know products um whether it's product management um you know product design you know you're so immersed in, in what you're doing it's compared to other jobs i've done before i came into to product that switching off from it is far harder you know you're absolutely absorbed in in, in that world and the thought of someone taking that on if they're not interested in solving those problems you know if the they aren't aligned with the culture. They don't want to work with those people. I, I just don't see how that's ever going to work, really. So I think trying to persuade someone, I, I, I get twitched. I think there has to be that alignment to Tom's point from the outset. Mm. Yeah. I think I, I think the majority of people know if they want a role, um, and I think when you get to latter stages, and if someone isn't clear about wanting that role the chances are they don't. And even if they take it for whatever reasons, it's not going to work out long time, um, long, long, long term, sorry. So I think um, there's, there's an element of crafting why an opportunity is really interesting and appealing, especially in a market where candidates have got lots of choice. And I think that maybe is the element where there should be most persuasion in terms of like something should be considered in yeah. you know a really competitive market like why is something why, why should something be considered why is something interesting why is that the right thing to at least have a look at but i think following on from that i think the, the vast majority of people are very clear on what it is that they want and as a recruiter it's up it's up to you to present them with the right opportunities and then the rest of it should just happen quite naturally and quite organically during the process 
Yeah, I would I would agree. But just to throw a little spanner into the works, you know, I think we all know of people who are hugely talented and we know would be a really great addition to a product team, either a designer, product manager, or even engineers that I've worked with in the past. But they don't like the idea of change. They don't like the idea of moving from what's comfortable right now to something else. So they do need a little bit of just sort of <laughs> gentle shoving over the hump. You know, we all know that it would work out pretty well on the other side, but there's just that momentum that needs to be, you know, got over first. So that's really the the, the interplay between persuasion and sort of selling that I think I'm really interested in specifically here. How do you feel about that? Yeah, and I think like it, it, it's always easier to stay where you are, right? Um, especially in a market like this one where there could be a perception of risk, you know, cost of living, um, you know, companies making redundancies. If ever there was a time when you might think it's easier to stay where I am, it's, 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 it's right now. I mean, I think if you're talking about that initial bit and the initial kind of like spur and motivation to just have a conversation, for me, I think the most crucial role that a recruiter can play at that stage is by having a great network. So someone, um, that is the bit where you can have a real value add to an organization is being able to connect them to people that you have meaningful relationships with that have been forged over a period of time. And again, I'll use that word trust. People who trust you, people who will pick up the phone to you straight away and will listen to you because they know that from your previous engagements with that person, you know what you're talking about, you've got a good network and you uh, know what it is that they're interested in. That's the bit where, for me, working with a good recruiter who's deep in the skill set, deep in the market, and understands the stage of growth for the companies you're working for, but also the candidates you're dealing with, that's where someone can add real value because they can essentially make sure that you see someone who you wouldn't otherwise ever meet. All right. So here's, here's another one for you then, Tom. You're going to love this one. The relationship between clients and recruiters can sometimes be a bit fraught. You've mentioned this already. Um, for example, you know, I've had recruiters contact me about a supposed role in the past that I'm pretty sure didn't actually exist. Um, but they were fishing for info and opportunities in my team. You know, what are the root causes of this? Right. And, and how do we on both sides avoid these kind of situations? Yeah, I think um, from an organizational standpoint, from a company hiring perspective, I think it's about working with people that you trust. Um, and I've spoken a lot about that already. But I think the more the more that you can build up um, connections with recruiters who you trust with your brand and you trust with your value proposition in the market and you trust to ethically represent you in a way that would be fitting with your values, that's going to negate that problem. I think as well, the other thing for me is like the more that you can engage with a with a recruitment agency on an exclusive basis. Now, whether that is retained, whether that is a consultancy basis, like whatever that looks like, but that is one of the key ways in which you can ensure that um, everyone who's engaging in the in, um, in 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 the process is working towards the same outcome. Okay, so yeah, uh, here's another one then, changing tack a little bit again. So look, changing jobs is supposed to be one of the most stressful things that you can do in life, right? And I wonder if that's because sometimes the hiring process can feel a little broken. You know, em employers are worrying that they're hiring someone that maybe has some like hidden trait that they can't interview for or, or, or you know, hope to find in that process. And, you know, employees don't always know what they're letting themselves in for. You know, they they can meet a good number of people in the organization as part of the interview process, but there's still that that question, you know. 
How can we, working with you, do you think, improve this situation? So I think um, I think it, you need to look at it from both sides. So um, I think from a from a company hiring perspective, um, using sort of like you know whether it's structured competency based interviews, um, live assessments, um, deep dives into people's career history, and really understanding their motivations, companies need to make sure that they're doing that to so make sure that they're finding technically people who can do the job. Right. The, 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 the next bit relates to finding people who are culturally aligned to the organisation um, and people who are comfortable with the requirements that come from working in that organization now obviously you know early stage can be quite stressful you know incredible but can also be quite stressful at times right um so i think on the company side of things i think it's being as transparent as possible about what is the commitment from uh, from the candidate and the person coming in to do that job so like what will it actually mean on a day-to-day week-to-week basis because where i think you get disconnects is often in the interview process a company sounds great and an opportunity sounds incredible and you know people are going to work together to go and change the world which is you know definitely a thing but then when starting at the organization potentially on day one it can feel very different um so i think from a company standpoint it's being really clear about okay this is the mission this is what we're going to go and do this is why we're great but it's also and this is what it may feel like on a day-to-day basis and these are some of the knock-on elements of that and what that will mean to you yeah um I think another thing within that as well is like really doing due diligence on people. So outside of the interview process, I'm I'm a big advocate of people asking for like references and recommendations. I think that the majority of people um, when they're moving roles, I think the the more often that references and recommendations are asked for and, you know, people are able to supply those. I think there's a much, much stronger hit rate when you're hiring people. The second one is if if you're thinking about um, people going for roles, and I think you know the best way to make sure you're landing in something which is right for you. You know, you can meet as many of the team as as you want. You know, going deep on the values, like all of that stuff, is great and very important. But I think the other thing that people need to do, and I think one one thing that's very important, is being clear around what's important to you, um, especially around things like flexibility. Like, like what can you actually commit to? What are you actually looking for in a role? You know, making sure that when you land, it's going to match up with what you need. Um, I think, again, where I see disalignment most frequently is where, for whatever reason, people may have got caught up in an incredible interview process that feels great and then maybe not been really transparent or open or, or maybe even been conscious of what that might actually mean when they start in an organisation. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I think the frankness, that's something I hold myself to a high standard on in, in a hiring process, being... You know, sometimes you've got to give people bad news in the process, right? They they want to work um, five days a week from home. No, I'm sorry, you're going to need to be in the office w- once a week or um, yeah. some other bit of flexibility just, just isn't going to be possible. But I think actually, if you can be really candid and straightforward with people, um, candidates find that enormously refreshing. I think it when you start to get haziness, I think is where it can start to undermine that trust. And it, you know, and a smart candidate I think well if they're being like that with me now what what on earth is it going to be like when I actually start working for them um what other ways are things going to be hazy or unclear or not as flexible as I'd hoped so it I think you can really sort of set the standard for what that working relationship is going to look like um and some candor well-placed candor and frankness are enormously powerful in that one. Um, and to go back to one of those points there that you made um Tom Kay. You know, one of the things that I like to do in an interview, and actually it's a question that if it doesn't come up 
in the previous jobs that I've interviewed for, I have asked about it, is I've said, just tell me what your day looks like. Describe a typical week to me. You know, what are those day-to-day kind of activities that you're doing? Because that's usually a quite specific little window into the world. And if someone can't give you, uh, if you're interviewing and the hiring manager can't give you a very good, accurate description of what that is, or it doesn't smell right, because sometimes a lot of this is based on gut instinct, then, um, you know, that's a sign, right? But if they can, and if what they tell you happens really resonates with you and lights your fire and gets you excited, then that is, again, a really, really positive, really strong signal in the positive direction. So, yeah, I, for, for that reason, I like that question. Yeah, it's it, 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 such a good point. And I think, um, I think that that is the thing that, Obviously, everyone goes into an interview process with like the best intentions, right? And I think that is the bit that I think as a recruiter is most disappointing when you basically find out there's, there, there isn't alignment after someone started a job because fundamentally it's not worked for the person. It's also not worked for the client. So I think, you know, eradicating as many of those as possible, maybe even before the process has started, but if not during the process and having as much transparency as possible between all the parties involved, I think is such an important thing to make sure that you know, fundamentally, the right people are joining the right companies. The, the ROI on this is 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 um, important to consider, isn't it? Because as you say, the cost of mishiring is so high. So investing in making this right and spending the right amount of time getting it right is is so important. Okay, so thinking specifically about product management and product design, how long do you think an employee should remain in one company? <laughs> Another tough one. Um, Obviously, looking, it's, it's, it's changed quite a lot, right, even in the last two to three years where there's been um, significant investment in fast growth tech. And I know we're going to talk a bit about the market and what's been happening and what's, and what's, and what's, what's, what's likely to happen. But um, tenures in roles have, have shortened due to that because fundamentally people have had more choice and, you know, explosion of working from home. Um, COVID, like all, all of those things have been big impact. I think typically you would see a PM... Um, tending to be somewhere within for about two to three years, typically for a PM. And then I think for a, from a design standpoint, you might look at someone being somewhere for a, probably about one to two years as a designer. Um, so a little bit, a little bit less. I think if I flip it around and think about hiring companies, one of the biggest questions that hiring companies have is about people's value add. And I think the issue that you have, whatever the reasons for slightly shorter stints is, the shorter your period of time within an organization, the less likely it is you've had a really significant impact because it takes, you know, a good few months to get up and running, you know, adding value. And so the shorter that time period is, the more questions a hiring company is going to have about, hey, this person seems great, but what did they actually do? How did they actually impact it? And that's, that's the challenge that I think a lot of people have who maybe have slightly shorter stints, regardless of potentially the context behind those reasons. Just speaking from my experience recently on that, Craig, I've found, you know, if you've been somewhere less than two years, you'll, you'll get asked about that um, if you're you know, going for another role. And particularly if you've got repeat periods of, of less than two years. Um, and what I'd also say is that the market is very polarised at the moment. And I'd say it's as simple as, um, you know, short tenures being a huge red flag to one group of people that they just cannot get past, whether that's hiring managers or, or recruiters, frankly. But then there's another group of people that um, are willing to hear you out um, and, and hear what the, the sort of reasoning and understand um, what, what that person's saying um, and, and might be able to get past it. Um, but, you know, <laughs> if you get to have that conversation, sort of explain what happened, I think 
what's crucial is that um, you're very open, very transparent, but there's not even the merest hint of defensiveness because that's when you'll lose them, even, you know, the most willing to hear someone out. So, um, yeah, it's tough on that front at the moment, I'd say. And I think that's the that's that's the other bit about working with a a good recruiter on both sides of the fence, you know, both as a candidate, but also as a client is like a good recruiter who's able to give a narrative and, and take something beyond just the CV and the profile to really talk about the person, you know, what happened in those situations? Why is now the right time? How can you negate any concerns? Um, I think that that, again, is an area where a recruiter can have a real value add for people. Okay, um, so for the the final pieces, we're going to just sort of frame this slightly differently now and, and open this up to everyone. Um, I'll, I'll just talk about some points, I think, and we can discuss those in the round. Um, so, okay, the first thing is, right, to what extent should hiring managers define the skills and experience that they are looking for? You know, is it is it better to cast the net? wider with a slightly more more vague um specification maybe or is it better just from the outset to be more specific i'll i'll cast that over to tom h to start with actually what do you think tom yeah i've got a strong opinion on this one actually i won't, I won't pretend otherwise it, i mean i, I feel it <laughs> <laughs> Good. um i think it's absolutely incumbent on hiring managers to have complete clarity on, on what they're looking for whether that's experience competencies behaviors um, you know, to a, approach it in any other way, uh, I, I almost find inconceivable, really. And it, for, for several reasons, um, I mean, you know, how can you hope for that, that person to be successful if you don't know what you're asking from them or, or, or of them, firstly? Um, but secondly, you know, we're massively helping the recruiter there in terms of their search, qualifying people in and out uh, and so on. But then it's going to be crucial for your pitch to strong candidates. and. You know, that's one thing I'd argue about the hiring process as a hiring manager. It's a sales process the other way from the outset as well, right? I think a lot of people lose sight of that. So how can you hope to deliver an effective pitch if you, if you don't know what you're looking for in the first place? Have complete clarity on that. So it's uh, an absolute non-negotiable from my standpoint. Me. Me too, 100%. I mean, I think, I think you should be as specific as possible around the culture fit like the personality fit that you're looking for and the sorts of people who do well and maybe don't do well within your teams and within the company. Yeah. I think you should also be really clear on like the technical skills that you're looking for. Um, and then I think the third thing as well is like being really clear around like what kind of profile that then translates to. So like, you know, mm. where will this person likely have been? What will they likely have done in those roles? You know, uh, yeah. that bit is so important. I think, you know, you can communicate the technical skills, but if you don't communicate the slightly um, less tangible elements around, okay, you know, the personality, cultural fit side, what's good, what what maybe wouldn't work, and as well, then kind of what that might correlate to in terms of a profile, that bit is is so so important. So, yeah, my, my advice would always be be as specific as possible because I think as a company and a client and a hiring manager, you're less likely to have your time wasted that way. Um, and if you need to extrapolate the search, if you need to expand it, then do that gradually and do that over time when you know that you can't find the perfect profile that you're looking for. And then it's about like, you know, what areas are their flex? How do you stack rank those things? What do you prioritize within, you know, what is kind of like an ideal shopping list if you're thinking about technical skills and everything like that? So, okay, so what part does um, product culture play when hiring into teams? 
Um, again, Tom H, maybe I can send this your way. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, complete clarity it, it is so important on that one. And I find it baffling when, um, you know, product leaders don't don't have that clear sense of the type of product or that they're building um, and haven't put in the hard yards to get internal alignment right. That, that's just as important um, and can cause just as many problems if, you know, the way that sales work, the way that marketing see the world doesn't sync well with, with the type of product team we're trying to build. Um, but I think the reason that's so important is there's there's so many spectrums that, you know, you need to be intentional about where you're going to put the product team on right. Um, so, for example, the emphasis on product discovery versus being very lean startup, in other words, just shipping stuff and seeing how it lands, that there's an enormous difference there in terms of how customer success are going to receive that, how sales are going to receive it. So that's one. You know, another would be how empowered squads or product people are going to be versus, you know, having a very directional CEO or founder or co-founder. Um, and then a the final one, I think, would be, you know, risk appetite. Um, how what's the willingness like for things to just completely fail um, and you know be spectacularly successful? But more more the failures are, are people willing, you know, to to experience that and live with it, or are they going to sort of panic and throw the toys out of the pram? So unless you've got a, alignment on that, it's going to be tremendously difficult, both in terms of the people you're hiring, but also those other stakeholders that the product have. I think I think that product culture thing as well is super interesting when you're looking at um, people who would be right for a role and right for an organization. You know, you can have internal wider culture and, you know, are they a good person to work with? Do they, you know, add loads of value to the organization in so, so, so some of the slightly less tangible areas? But I think things that you're talking about there, like as in, you know, how much control will they have? How much autonomy will they have? How much belief in their in, in product is there in the organization how much appetite for risk they have you know all of those things are so so interesting when you're looking at trying to find the right person for the role so I think yeah I completely agree with you I think as much clarity as a hiring manager can give a recruiter on all of those things is going to mean that your success rate when you're trying to work with that person is going to be significantly enhanced yeah I was just gonna say that I think in in product design again I think this comes down to tangibles you know what kind of personalities almost you want to hire into your teams you know especially if you're working in a sort of startup so tom k your kind of area as well you know you're going to need to find someone who is sort of a bit robust right so it can can take the the pace can take the the, the comments and the feedback um that are going to be coming their way so you need to find someone who's got that kind of character and, and personality but also um you know you're going to have to find people who are willing to to move at a pace so a little bit like Tom was saying there about, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, discovery versus execution um, spectrum that you might want to put your business on. Um, you're going to find some designers who just want to hold on to that design for a little bit longer, just want to do another iteration. It's not quite ready yet. Um, and that's great a great design approach in certain organizations where you've got uh, you know an amount of time to be able to do that and you know n no design is ever finished and usually a couple more iterations are going to get you something better but obviously it's diminishing returns um versus people who are a bit more action oriented and let's let's you know there's definitely been a shift in the industry over the last decade or so to getting something out to market um that you think is right and then validating that with real users so that would you know suggest a bias for um let's get something we think is great out there that's got some evidence behind it that maybe we don't have the full picture on but that we can test when we actually get it out there or test some variants of as well but you need to find people who are up for that 
So again, I think it comes back to the sort of tangibles in a product designer that you're looking for, um, for someone who can, who can deliver on those. I think whether it's, whether it's PMs or whether it's designers, one of the things that I've seen as like a real trend is, um, is being able to identify people who have operated well at a company of a similar stage of growth. So all of those things that you're talking about there, right? Like continuing to, you know, continuing to iterate versus better today than perfect tomorrow. Like, you know, for just, 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 just for example, you know, I think, again, if you're thinking about it from a recruitment standpoint, you are more likely to hire better people for your organization if you find people who have been on the journey before. If you find people who have operated within a similar stage of growth face similar challenges and like come through and done really well. Um, again, slightly less tangible, but those are the sorts of things which will massively improve your um, your success ratio with hiring. Is what you're saying there then that it's part culture, but also part experience and history fit as well, like experiences that people have had in previous? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where like, a, you know, a really thorough interview process where you're going through sort of like someone's career history and you're getting really deep into not only what moves did they make and why did they make them and why did they leave and stuff like that but you know what did they learn at different places like you know what was the journey mm -hmm. they went on at those companies you know i joined x company when they were 25 people i scaled with them to 100 like oh my god there's going to be so much that, that person's learned in that period of time and if you're a similar sort of sized company who's looking at going on the same journey like that's your person right they've they've, they've been there and done it so um yeah definitely completely agree with you It is an interesting one. What do you think the hiring process looks like in 2024? So I think right now, like what does the hiring process look like right now and how might it have changed? And how do you think it might change by the end of 2024? I think yeah. this one's going to go to Tom K first, I think, actually. Yeah, go for it, Tom. We're going to know a ton about it. I think one of the trends that we've seen is we've seen um, – because hiring companies have had more choice due to there being more candidates available on the market, we've seen elongated processes. So we've seen people choosing to, you know, do another stage where we'd just like to meet a few more candidates. So one of the things that we've seen from a hiring process standpoint across both product managers and product designers has been processes being much longer than they would have been previously. If you think back to 2021, 2022, the majority of candidates on the market had multiple interview processes, sometimes multiple offers. People were moving as quickly as they possibly could to secure the person who they felt was the best fit, often in a really short period of time. Um, I think in 2023 and I think sort of moving into 2024, I think we'll see more processes where people are taking a bit longer because they've got more choice and they've got more availability. And fundamentally, there's been less demand maybe for some of these candidates and they can take their time a bit, a bit more. Yeah, I've certainly experienced that. I had a couple one couple when I was looking recently <clears throat> where extra stages were inserted. I had an extra ta second task in one of them, which was <laughs> I could have done without that, I I'll be honest. But um, what I've found recently is that um, the expectations are super high in a, in a couple of senses that you'll take every single box. You know, there doesn't seem to be any appetite for people having a gap versus crime. It's certainly for product leadership roles you're going to need to do at least a nine out of ten in every step or you know you'll, you'll be out there's no doubt about that and and what i also i mean i came second twice before i got a, a couple of offers recently and i kind of tracked back and they gave me some great feedback about where i came up slightly short and it was such small things it was you know in one interview in one process i'd go slightly fewer examples and in another process one answer i gave 
really triggered what one of the founders just one answer and that's that's enough these days to to knock you out of it so um but what i'd also say is that there's something that coming second is definitely a milestone to coming first so that's that's great as hard as it is to take at the time that's that's crucial and it's also something about being kind of match fit as you go through those posts i was definitely better after having those two sort of near misses i tightened up the areas i needed to tighten up and then you know managed to get a couple over the line so it yeah, it's tough to take, but it, it definitely hardens you for the, the future process. I think also within within that, Tom, did that did that help with your calibration in terms of like what you're ideally looking for as well? I mean, I think like, oh, I think for, for me, I think something that that, that 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 is always really positive is taking the opportunity to go and talk to a few organizations, even if you're coming to market with a really specific idea of what your ideal next role is going to look like. I think a few conversations to help sort of validate that and benchmark that, I think are incredible. Like, um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to understand if that was something that, that, that you experienced. Yeah, my, my views definitely changed as I spoke to more people about what I needed in my next role. I mean, I, I had a really firm view going in and it was, you know, these domains, um, this sort of leadership role. And actually what I figured out as I went through that it was who I work with and how they work by far and away the mm. most important things and it was only by to your point going through a few processes not necessarily always the end but sort of seeing how people reacted to some of my questions or the way they're asking me and it, we're like, mm, that isn't going to quite going to work within that culture so yeah I, I, you know you've got to be a little bit careful that you're not entering process, process on a kind of spurious basis but um you know but one thing i would say there actually is that that i learned is not to be put off if one or two things on a job spec seem a bit wonky, because um, mm. some of the best processes I ended up in were ones I was, mm, I'm not quite sure, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. And it turned out, you know, maybe the hiring manager hadn't written the job spec, or they just it, they didn't mean how it came across. So, yeah, there's a lot of learnings on on that front for sure. And, and you yeah, could yeah. argue that that works both ways, right? Like you could argue that if you're a candidate, uh, if you're a hiring manager looking at candidates as well, <laughs> and this is the unfortunate case we've got at the moment where there's so many um, candidates around and you're getting a sort of relatively standard set of, of capabilities from almost everyone, it's very difficult to, to separate those very special candidates um, out from that because something might be just slightly wonky on the CV or the, or the portfolio that you're seeing. So, yeah, I think that that slight little bit of flexibility, although it sort of contradicts a lot of what we've just previously said, it still feels like it's quite important. Yeah. yeah so I think so much of it comes back to mindset, in my view, for good hiring, right? And we've talked tons about this, Craig, when, when we work together. But, you know, growth mindset, how willing people are to do something slightly different than they're used to. Um, so when, you know, the need arises, ship something really quickly, it, until you speak to someone, you know, you can read as many words as you want to on a CV, but how, how they react and that sort of personal chemistry, those are only things you can assess when you actually start speaking. All right, so final question, looking forward. So do, let's do a bit of forecasting. Let's do a bit, little bit of Mystic Meg gazing into a crystal ball. Blimey, that shows my age. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> so we, we've seen a significant shift you could argue in the job market recently, um, uh, you know, quite unique in the decades that I've been working in product for sure. You know, what's driven this shift, Tom Kay, and how long do you anticipate this lasting, do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, it's fundamentally just down to investment, right? So 2021, I think there was about $650 billion of VC capital deployed. Um, last year, it was about $200 billion, which I appreciate is still like massive numbers, but just nothing comparatively with like two years before. So I think a lack of investment has meant you've got less companies hiring aggressively, which also then means that even if your company isn't hiring, you don't have the knock-on replacements and backfills that come from other people hiring your staff. Um, so, so that has caused there to be a real sort of like lack of roles on the market. I think another thing as well with that is like because of like you look at some of like the macroeconomic things happening on an individual level, right, that, that, that they're imp in, impacting individuals. You've got more people at the moment who are maybe reluctant to move, whereas off the back of COVID, majority of people working from home, potentially a bit disconnected to the organization they worked in, able to save a bit more money. People are a bit more sort of like willing to take a chance and, 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 and make a move and maybe see what happened. I think at the moment with the cost of living as it is, you've got a lot more people thinking, I'm just going to hold tight. So those two things combined last year, I think, resulted in quite a stagnant kind of market where there wasn't loads of growth from a recruitment standpoint. So that's been that's been an interesting one to navigate, to say the least. Yeah, I think what's also happened is um, growth startups or growth businesses have rapidly gone out of fashion. And, and what I mean by that yeah. is companies that require funding to fund their day to day operations. So they're, they're not close to profitable. You know, I remember the days, it wasn't even that long ago, right, two or three years ago, where VCs were encouraging stroke forcing you to spend the money they gave you and raise more. It couldn't be more mm -hmm. different. You know, it's a total 180 now. Um, so that's definitely a change. You know, there's hiring whole squads at once. Uh, you know, I, I don't think many people have that luxury anymore. Um, so that's certainly one big, big change. And certain domains have gone out of fashion a little bit. You know, fintech was really hot a couple of years ago, much less so these days. And I think also, there's an awareness that some companies got funding when perhaps they shouldn't have done um, and that, you know, multiples were far higher than they should have been. So there's been a kind of fundamental correction in the mindset of both the LPs, the limited partnerships that, that fund the VCs, and then obviously the knock-on impact is the VCs themselves. So it, it looks and feels very different now if you're a business that's, that's trying to raise. Yeah, I, fun I, I, I fundamentally don't think the bubbles burst. I mean, you, you sort of hear some sort of like a doom mongering around stuff like that. I think I think it's just right sizing. I think it's just level to where would be would be would be sort of like an appropriate level. And I think, you know, I think I think we'll see growth in 2024 because, you know, VCs don't stop raising capital even when they're not deploying it. So you've got lots of people who have got dry powder and are ready to go for the right businesses. But I think the requirements of raising capital are significantly more stringent now than potentially they were 18 months or so ago. So I think that's 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 part of it. You've also got the fact that a lot of organizations over the last 12 months have been focusing on, um, you know, they've been focusing on extending runway. They've been focusing on yeah. profitability. They've, they've, they've been focusing on, on, on optimization of what they have already. And, and none of those things typically lend themselves to huge amounts of growth, right? So I think that's been, that's been something we've definitely seen in the last year or so. But I think even, I mean, we saw, we saw hiring from our US clients kind of seize up probably in Q4 of 2022. And then, you know, UK and mainland Europe still sort of like going pretty strong up until sort of Q1 of 2023. Um, 
and then kind of you know that 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 kind of seized up as we as we as, as we moved through last year and um, a lot of our us clients and uh, you know definitely led by the us economy seem to be starting to hire again and a lot more volume is starting to come across that way so i think logic would sort of dictate that the same thing will happen in the uk as we move into 2024 which um yeah will be well overdue <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah it does feel like this year i'm very optimistic about 24 2023 was hard but yeah 24 feels like a really uh you know optimistic outlook for for the whole industry really um so yeah i'm, I'm very excited about it all right final final question um on that one um Let's talk about trends. What do you see as some of the biggest trends in recruitment uh, that we should be watching out for this year and going forward? Yeah, so I can have a go at this one, Craig. I, I think um, smaller product teams will, will definitely be a thing. Um, that's um, you know that's that's on my mind, and I think um, you know I'm chatting to other product leaders, I think that's on their mind too. So I don't think flexible people being at a premium. You know, can you hire a couple of flexible people? rather than three specialists, maybe even paying those flexible people a bit more, you know, when you net that out, you'll, you know, you can have a smaller resource envelope, right, in terms of cost. So that, that's one thing. I think related to that, I think a blurring of roles, you know, if you've maybe got slightly fewer product people, can you have engineers do a bit more in terms of conceiving and writing requirements, for example? I've, I've worked in businesses where engineers write the user stories. So that, that can be a thing. Um, and I think, you know, given you're going to have those constrained resources or more likely to have them, I think it's even more important than ever that in 2024 and beyond that there's real intention and clarity about the product culture you're building, about how you're going to work and where you're going to put yourself on those, those spectrums I talked about earlier and, and what your, your risk appetite looks like. Um, are you going to try and ship at the speed of light? and accept you're going to have a lot of misses in terms of things you launch. Can you tolerate that as an organization? Um, or actually, in reality, do you need a bit of validation before you go to market stuff? So the product leader has to step up in that context. I don't think you can leave that to chance anymore. Yeah, I completely agree. I think from a product standpoint specifically, we're going to see smaller, more cross-functional, multidisciplinary teams who can just get, get, get more coverage. Um, I think the other thing, uh, I think one of the other things you'll see as well is like a, a greater demand on people being able to clearly demonstrate their commercial um, value add in an organization. I think yeah. sort of like, you know, if we were to rewind two, three years ago, I think there was a big focus around people building things that looked good and, you know, building things that solved a problem. Now, one of the key things that people are asking in interviews is like, how did you impact the bottom line? So what you specifically did, what you built, how did that impact revenue of the organization? Um, so I think that's that's something that's really interesting as well. I think a rise in, a rise in fractional product leadership also, especially for early stage companies, whereas previously they might have gone out to market and hired a head of or hired a VP. Maybe they're going to look now at, well, how do we get someone who, again, has been there and done it? But, you know, could maybe work with us and advise our founder or our CEO for a day or two days a week and kind of leverage all that experience. I think another thing that I've seen as well is a lot of people wanting to buy specific expertise that they don't have. So, again, versus market two, three years ago where people were, you know, happy to go on the journey with someone. They'd hire someone who maybe had 75 percent of the skills and 
we'll work out the rest all together because we're all in the same boat. Now people, you know, Tom, I know one of your favorite words, now people are being very intentional about, um, no, we, we're a Series A company. We want to hire a product leader who's gone from Series A to exit. And that is specifically what we want. So I think there'll be more of that. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I mean, even from a product design perspective as well, I think you can track back to a time five, maybe six or seven years ago where, um, you know, designers were cross-functional. You know, there, there were UX designers who were doing user research as well. You know, there were, there were lots and lots of teams that were full of visual designers that were also doing parts of UX. You know, you, you had the service design just wasn't, um, something that you were hiring specifically for unless you were a significant organization, you know, 50 design team, um, strong or, or more. Um, and then it swung the other way and we hired lots of specialists. Um, and they were doing less work, you could argue, but very, you know, specialist focus work. And yeah, I agree. It does feel like the swing is back again now to us looking for teams where, um, people have a, a flexibility in their approach and also that kind of experience across the board in a couple of different disciplines and domains. Um, so yeah, in, interesting times. And I think, I think what that might mean as well is like that salaries don't necessarily go down. Um, salaries might even go up and sort of like, you know, the yeah. caliber of people who get hired will be, will be, will be similar. But I think maybe the requirements and expectations on those people might be enhanced. Um, yeah. you know, if you're doing one and a half jobs, you might get paid a bit more, but the expectation is going to be that you're delivering for one and a half people. So again, you know, we've spoken a lot in this, um, in this pod about consistency and clarity of communications and making sure that people are understanding what it is that they're getting involved in especially when taking a job i think that that bit especially as the market switches now is going to be more important than ever to make sure that people are aware of what it is that they're signing up for and the journey they're potentially going on yeah i think that that last point's a great one because it i I saw a lot of principal pm roles um Mm. recently i think you know those gun and it could be a principal product designer equally right but those gun people that can it, you know, sometimes do the do the work of, of multiple people, but it's a cut through so much, particularly in a more political organisation, a larger organisation maybe, um, and just solve these problems very, very quickly. It, um, yeah, I think the really chunky salaries against some of those people, for sure. Yep. yep. And just to go back to a point that you mentioned, Tom, K, about effectively proving ROI. So like even from a product designer's perspective as well, it's always been super hard to prove the impact that you've had as a designer on the bottom line, because, you know, you are quite a, a distance away from that. And I think you know, designers uh, over the last, you know, certainly decade have become better and better at being driven by the metrics or certainly being informed by the metrics and those success metrics being such an important part of you know, design and iterative design as well. Um, but we have to get better designers as um, at selling ourselves from that perspective as well. You know, mm-hmm. how are we actually contributing to that chain of profit, to that chain of revenue and not being scared to get involved with the, with the financials of the business? You know, not being scared to be over it and understanding it and, and seeing what kind of an impact the product function and design specifically can have on the, on the bottom line of a company. Uh, because it's, as you say, becoming incumbent increasingly, uh, you know, recently on all functions of a business being focused on the bottom line. 